Make America Great Again podcast with Brian Crabtree. And another edition of the Make America Great Again podcast. Your host, Brian Crabtree, Talk40.com. It's great to have you here. Coming up today, FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe out. Is this obstruction of justice by the Trump administration or is it draining the swamp? That in a moment. Katy Perry's battle with the nuns over the $14.5 million convent in Los Angeles is really heating up. Are the nuns at fault or another Hollywood music liberal attacking religion? We'll get to that in a bit. And plus, are you addicted to being busy? Just plain old busy. And is it ruining your life? All that today in the Make America Great Again podcast on Talk40.com. Let's start with Andrew McCabe, who says he's being singled out, fired this past Friday by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, hitting back at Trump as he says, I'm I'm innocent here. I'm being singled out because of this Mueller investigation. He says his firing is part of the president's war on the agency of the FBI. Jeff Sessions is believed to have fired him if for no other reason than to find some way to try to put a mend to the relationship he has with President Trump. But is it more than that? The Inspector General has a report forthcoming that says McCabe may have been one of the leakers early in the Trump administration that was leaking perhaps sensitive and maybe even classified data to the media, New York Times, CNN, The Washington Post. Is that true? Um, his government pension is in question, said to be worth about $1.8 million. And Democrats, some in politics now coming out saying, I'll give McCabe a job so he can serve out his term to earn his full pension. You know, for the people, it's funny, for the people who were saying, well, I think Trump should have waited until the, uh, or Sessions should have waited until the Inspector General's full report came out. We should have really known all the facts before we fired him. Shouldn't Democrats do that as well before they hire him back? Because maybe there is something to this. Remember, McCabe was instrumental high up in the Clinton email investigation and, and both the Russian meddling probe. Trump rejoiced in his firing. Let's get to some of the tweets from Trump over the weekend. Uh, let's take a look. I mean, these are pretty, uh, pretty strong tweets, and many are saying, I don't think this is a good idea for the president to do this. I don't know what this president does except take to Twitter to get his side of the story uh, into the press because if you allow this to go on so long and you don't fight back, regardless of what people think of your ongoing tweets, you don't fight back. Then all of a sudden, when the facts come out, if they're twisted, even framed against you, then you really don't have a, a platform, a foundation of, of, of anything but a reaction at that moment. Whereas you've been saying all along it's a witch hunt. I mean, I think it's absolutely necessary. I've had radio callers call in and say, you know, I think you should let justice do its job. And then, you know, at the end of that, find all the facts. Yeah, would you do that if you were being accused of something you didn't do? You wouldn't fight back. You'll just sit and wait. It doesn't matter if you're if you're not guilty of something and you don't fight back and try to control the narrative, the public relations aspect of it during the process of an investigation or a court proceeding. You've lost anyway. Whether you're guilty or not in the court of law, when these public profile incidents occurs, whether it be sexual harassment claims or Russia meddling or Russia collusion or obstruction of justice, doesn't matter what it is. 
You've already been framed in the court of public opinion, and that's most valuable. Yes, your freedom is ultimately the most valuable. But if you didn't do anything illegal that could merit or net you jail time, you're best served to fight these things because if you don't, you lose anyway. Trump tweeting throughout the weekend a bit of a, I'd call it a, a Twitter storm. Uh, <laughs> uh, Andrew McCabe fired. This started on Friday. Here's a Trump tweet. A great day for the hardworking men and women of the FBI. A great day for democracy. Sanctimonious James Comey was his boss and made McCabe look like a choir boy. He knew all about the lies and corruption going on at the highest levels of the FBI. Comey's got a book coming out. I think it's later this month or early next month, uh, and it's going to be basically his account of dealing with the FBI and all of this. And I, I guess he's going to enrich himself off of his job as a federal servant. You know, he's serving the government. You know, Jim Comey is written a book now, and they're guarding it so tightly that they're making the, the elite few who have access to the book itself sign specific confidentiality agreements and go through high security processes like they're managing gold at the Federal Reserve, almost literally. Trump also tweeted on Saturday, as the House Intelligence Committee has concluded, there was no collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. As many are now finding out, however, there was tremendous leaking, lying, and corruption at the highest levels of the FBI, Justice, and State. He went on on Saturday, moments later, to say the fake news is beside themselves that McCabe was caught, called out, and fired. How many hundreds of thousands of dollars was given to wife's campaign by crooked Hillary friend Terry McAuliffe, who was also also under investigation. How many lies, how many leaks, Comey knew it all, and much more. I think Trump's right on this one. I, I, I think Trump's right. Now, these are tough tweets. These are really tough tweets. And to some extent, even as I'm reading them, I'm going, is this helping or hurting? I, I don't know, but it's bringing to light the conversation that we've got to have as a country that this stuff really happened. Whether Trump should be tweeting as president or not, we can debate whether we believe that or not. But this stuff really happened. That's why my debate on Trump's tweets is that they're appropriate, because we have to remember Terry McAuliffe, the former governor of Virginia, his wife is in politics in Virginia. His wife is very close to Hillary Clinton, as is McAuliffe. They've all traded campaign money from the from the McAuliffe Political Action Committee. I don't know the name of it. And Andrew McCabe is married to a woman very close in the Clinton camp. He says he voted Republican until this president, but that in and of itself is an admission that he doesn't like this particular president. My view on these FBI people is that they've been running a sham, weaponized politically by the Obama administration, perhaps the Bush and Clinton administration as well. I don't know. And they knew with Trump coming into office that they were all going to get, get ousted. That they were going to lose their power, their grab, their, their chokehold on the, on, the, on the wheels of justice in this country. The whole drain the swamp thing was so bad because so many people in the swamp, the swamp rats, the swamp turds, the swamp alligators knew they were finally going to be, well, exposed. It's like Warren Buffett has long said, and I think it's... Um, Ironic coming from a liberal like Buffett that it's only when the tide goes out that you can see who's been swimming without their underwear or swim shorts on. And that's what we're seeing now. 
We're seeing the people who say that they are above the law in terms of their quality, not above it in terms of their they never said that they're above the law because they never did anything wrong. They were the, the, the best judge of what's right and wrong. They were the, the, the final stopgap in justice to ensure that democracy stayed intact or the republic stayed intact and our democratic process stayed intact. They were serving their country with, uh, with duty and honor. They were called to a higher purpose. They had such great skills. They could go off and do anything, but they chose to do this for a measly government salary. And then we find out that they've been leaking. You know, I thought during the leaking early in the Trump administration, clearly from the FBI, that we had government contractors, middle-level people. We found that one government contractor leaking stuff. It was a Bernie Sanders hack and anti-Trump, you know, never Trump hater. But I thought it was a bunch of people like that. I'm like, why is this attorney general failing to go in there and root out and vet these people out? Why is, um, why is, uh, anybody failing to do it. Jim Comey was in place at the time. Why is he not getting this to an end? Well, he knew what was going on. Maybe he wasn't uh, in the middle of it. My view of Jim Comey, the former FBI director from uh, Obama to Trump that was fired last May is that he didn't do any of this. He didn't orchestrate any of it, but he just sort of smiled as it happened because he knew he would benefit from it. If Hillary Clinton was elected or if Trump was impeached, then he would get to keep his job because he closed down the investigation on her or allowed it to be closed down. And if Trump was impeached, he wouldn't get fired. He was walking a tightrope. Fact of the matter is the guy was probably going to get fired either way because he opened up the investigation again because he was he was he was torn between trying to be a righteous person and being a self-righteous person. The difference being righteous would have been to have ousted Andrew McCabe or others in the FBI that had their thumb on the scale in favor of Hillary Clinton. That would have been righteous. Get rid of them when it when when you noticed it happening. Instead, he was self-righteous in that he ascribed the fact that he did everything right and that he was so perfect, but he didn't actually do anything about the biggest wrongs under his own leadership. I'm reminded of when he said no prosecutor would bring charges against Clinton, and I now know why, because most of the prosecutors who would have been there to have brought the charges were Clinton supporters and Trump haters. And they had no interest in ousting the person who would underwrite their continued power and position and elevation of position. Trump went on. This was uh, again on Saturday. The Mueller probe should never have been started in that there was no collusion. There was no crime. It was based on fraudulent activities and a fake dossier paid for by crooked Hillary in the DNC and improperly used in FISA court for surveillance of my campaign. Witch hunt. A lot of people have seized on this, saying that what, what is to come next? Is he about to fire Mueller? I don't think so. There is an interesting take on the firing of McCabe, and I'll tell you that in a minute as to why McCabe's firing may be very indicative of what's about to happen in the overall Justice Department. Uh, hang tight. Just a couple of minutes. We'll get to that. More tweets from Trump over the weekend. This was on Sunday. Spent very little time with Andrew McKay, but he never took notes when he was with me. I don't believe he made memos except to help his own agenda, probably at a later date. Same with lying Jim Comey. Can we call them fake memos? This is very, very critical here. 
No one has asked that I have seen, and I've watched all these hearings of McCabe and Comey and all these FBI folks and intelligence people. No one has said, at what point did you take those memos? At what point did you write those memos? Remember, let me focus on Jim Comey because we've got more data on this one. Jim Comey had a meeting in January and February, uh, multiple meetings with Trump. Trump asked for his loyalty. And according to Comey, his response to the loyalty was that he would give him loyalty uh, to the extent that it was to provide the best injustice for the American people. That was the exact words, but that was the essence of it. The loyalty he would give would be loyalty to justice. And, and that, that's a fair response if that's the context of what happened. It's also not unfair for Trump to say, can I have your loyalty? Will you stay in lockstep with our policy and support legally our policy? Could be policy, could be anything. Could have been uh, firing Mueller. I don't know because Mueller wasn't in place at that time. So there, to say that there was an obstruction of justice by firing Comey would have been ludicrous because there was no indication of an investigation at the time. and There certainly wasn't a special counsel. So fast forward to May and Jim Comey's fired. And Trump sort of bashes Comey during the firing. He's out in California. They um, he's out on a, on a government plane. They have to get him back. He's not allowed to fully clean out his office. He's basically escorted out of the FBI as an insubordinate employee, which he was. That weekend passes Monday morning. Comey then later tells in a story. I don't remember if this was I think this was a testimony given to the Senate Intelligence Committee later in May or early June 2017. He says, you know, I had made memos after my meetings with Trump. And I felt that those memos needed to get out into the public square for people to get the real side of what was happening between Trump and I. And he'd said in April in testimony that Trump had never attempted to obstruct justice. So if the narrative is that he now did, then, then Comey lied under oath. Here's my theory. This is incredibly important. I think Jim Comey woke up as he described in that testimony to the Senate at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning on Monday after being fired on Friday and said to himself, I got to get all this written down and I got to get this to someone who can leak it to the press. Remember, part of the problem at the FBI for the first four months of the presidency of Donald Trump was, in, was, was 140 or 50 leaks. So you got the FBI director, Jim Comey, now leaking to a professor to leak to the press, a, a professor that's a friend of his, these so-called memos that he says he wrote at the time of meeting with Trump. But it appears to me he wrote them that weekend when he woke up in the morning, which means that they are polarized memos, which distort what actually happened based upon his anger from being fired. I don't know this for sure, but no one's asked the question, and someone should because our Senate Intelligence Committee members are too focused on the basics and the bureaucracy of it instead of the psychology of how people deceive us, especially in our government. They're not willing to go in there and reveal the level of deception at our government. So you've got now Andrew McCabe being fired, and he's saying he took notes from his meetings with Trump. Trump's saying there weren't that many meetings. See, here's the problem with someone like McCabe in a moment like this. It's easy for McCabe to know he's going to leave by being fired and to come out and say, I have several meetings with Trump, which could be two for four minutes apiece, right? 
or they could be 100 meetings an hour apiece. We don't know. So the media then piles on that statement, gives it a lot of credibility, while at the same time bashing a tweet like I just read you. Spent very little time with Andrew McCabe, says Trump, but he never took notes when he was with me. I don't believe he made the memos except to help his own agenda, probably at a later date. Same with lying James Comey. Can we call them fake memos? I think you can. I've, I've watched this. I've watched this. I've watched people in business. Hell, I've done it before where something happens and a few months later you realize you need to memorialize that moment because it's going to be a critical moment, a lawsuit, a battle, a complaint, some sort of public relations issue. And you go back and do the best job you can of recollecting what happened at the time and dating and, sta- and, and, and writing it down. And very few people ever go, well, at what point did you write this memo? At what point did you write this down? Because they don't see that as being important. But if you wrote it after your firing, it's incredibly important because it's probably a bunch of lies. So Trump's right here. Let's move on with his tweets. One more. Why does the Mueller team have 13 hardened Democrats, some big crooked Hillary supporters and zero Republicans? Another Dem recently added. Does anyone think this is fair? And yet there's no collusion. Well, there's only two ways to look at it. Either it's hard to find a lawyer in D.C., or a justice official in D.C., that's not a Democrat. That's one potential option. According to most accounts, Bob Mueller, the former FBI director, now special counsel, is a registered Republican. I don't know if I believe that or not. But let's just give that the benefit of the doubt. So you've got the director is a former Republican, and he goes and gets all Democrat people in order to do the investigation. So at the end of the investigation, if he walks out onto a microphone platform or stage and says, we've thoroughly vetted and investigated President Trump and the Trump Organization and the Trump, Trump campaign, and we found no evidence of collusion. We found a couple of inappropriate meetings, which you've all heard about with Don Jr. and Paul Manafort, with a Russian lawyer. But we found no evidence that there was any collusion, conspiracy, or working with Putin, the Kremlin, or the Russians by the Trump campaign in any way. And we find that all of those accounts are false. It's going to be hard for Republicans at that point to discount the fact that this was a very biased makeup in terms of a panel uh, of investigators because they're all Democrats except maybe Mueller. On the other hand, it would also be very lacking in credibility if they came out and said, we think that the Trump campaign did uh, collude with Russia, but we can't reveal the evidence because we've got to do this and that and the other to try to get an impeachment hearing going, which is sort of what happened with Ken Starr in the Clinton days. And then you have huge credibility issues as Bob Mueller for that. So either Mueller went in and the FBI went in knowing there was no collusion and wanted to investigate some of the financial crimes that they found of Paul Manafort and Rick Gates. They've been at least, uh, you know, alleged crimes i don't know if they actually committed the crimes or not but that's what's what's been alleged about them it's believable but i think until you have an actual hearing and a court process it's hard to really know what the truth is you've got um former uh general michael flynn who was the national security advisor you know he was a general which means you you had to be appointed by by the senate approved by the senate approved by the president i mean this is a pretty big deal very accomplished, decorated war hero. Michael Flynn, his life's ruined, lost his house. He's now out doing some campaigning, speaking, because he's apparently got a sentence or two wrong in, in terms of facts 
And maybe he did. Maybe he did lie to the FBI. I don't know. But that has nothing to do with collusion. It has nothing to do with being potentially up for blackmail. You're not, he has, it wasn't really a foreign agent. He did a speech for RT International, which is owned and operated to some great degree by the Kremlin of Russia. But, but does that rise to the level of someone who should be destroyed after a career of service? I mean, look at Michael Flynn and what's happened to him, his life, his family, his finances completely decimated in this versus Andrew McCabe. And you've got the mainstream media out defending McCabe when there's clear evidence forthcoming from the inspector general, which is maybe the one unbiased party left in the federal government that he was leaking data sensitive or classified to the press in order to block a democratically elected president of our Republic in Trump. I mean, that's as close to espionage as it can possibly be inside a Justice Department official's office. Remember Peter Strzok and Lisa Page? Peter Strzok being the top counterintelligence official at the FBI. Lisa Page, the lovers. Both married, now having an affair inside nepotism inside the FBI. Again, putting that aside as just being a side note. Lisa Page, a top attorney talking about a meeting in, in Andy's office and then later a secret society. Well, who was Andy but Andrew McCabe? That sounds like not only collusion, which is an illegal term, but conspiracy to frame a president, perhaps involved in wire fraud, leaking classified data knowingly. That's, that's, that's a traitor. We have traitors, potentially, in the FBI at the highest levels. I was wrong when I thought it was people maybe, you know, middle level, lower level in the FBI who had security clearances, access to data, who thought that they were doing something righteous by blocking this deviant, awful orange president that we have, as they call him. No, it was the highest level officials from Jim Comey who admitted it under oath to perhaps now Andrew McCabe, who we'll find out more detail when the inspector general report comes out and others. Peter Strzok, Lisa Page. Looks pretty bad, folks. And the problem is that the mainstream media, which I call fake stream media because they only cover one side of the story, leaving the viewer with a false impression of what's actually happening, is only covering how bad it is that this poor gentleman, McCabe, who has had impeccable service thus far, has lost his $1.8 million pension. I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn about his pension. I don't give a damn about Comey's pension. He's writing a book now to profit from his leaking of federal documents and data and lying to the American people. Whether he did it under oath or not, I don't know. That's to be proven in the court of law. Uh, here's one theory. I told you a moment ago, one of the theories um, of the McCabe firing is that McCabe could have been a successor to Jeff Sessions as the attorney general in the interim capacity had Jeff Sessions been fired by Trump, Trump has uh, it has been hinted, at least, that Trump would wants to get rid of Sessions, wants to fire Sessions, doesn't feel he's doing a strong enough job, isn't prosecuting the things he needs to be going after, isn't seeking out uh, what Hillary Clinton did or didn't do, isn't reopening the investigation, isn't investigating the investigations and has had a Twitter war at times uh, to some mild level with Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Well, there was a theory floating that if he fired Sessions, McCabe would have been the acting attorney general. And that if McCabe was the acting attorney general, that the Democrats in the Senate, 
especially led by Chuck Schumer, would not go to recess, would hold up so that they could keep McCabe in that spot and not allow whomever Trump appointed to be attorney general to get into position for quite some time, leaving McCabe sort of an open door and an unfettered platform for some period of weeks to actually further frame the president. And that would be the explanation that's most likely as to why President Trump hasn't fired Jeff Sessions. But now Sessions fired McCabe. And in doing so, the question is, did Sessions clear the path for his own firing in doing this? Or did he win the good graces of Trump back by firing someone who has been very much in the never Trump framing camp? That's a question I can't answer yet, but we certainly... We'll keep looking to it. This story is one of those that I think contributes to what is a growing phenomenon called Trump fatigue. At one point, people were fascinated by this whole reality TV show that's our politics. Now people are beginning to develop, uh, on the very onset of it, or a, a Trump fatigue. And a lot of people are going, I'm getting tired of all this. It's, it's like, I, who is Andrew McCabe? Who's Peter Strzok? Who's Lisa Page? I, all of these names. And then is he going to fire this one at the White House? And I don't give a crap who he fires. I don't, none of these people really affect my life. I just want my president to do what he said he was going to do when, when he was running for office. And I pushed a button and said, Trump, and I'm going to vote for this businessman instead of another career politician. I just want him to drain the swamp. Well, folks, this is all part of it. Draining the swamp isn't easy. It doesn't matter whether you're in your local homeowners association or whether you're the president of the United States or at any point in between. When you start to make changes and start to challenge the way of things, the status quo, the people that have been in place as career servants, just think about it on the homeowners association. My wife's on it now uh, where we live. And we're starting to see it, these little ancillary attacks, you know, little little undermining, little, you know, change of things here where people still have power. They can go behind the scenes. There was an email sent the other day regarding my wife, and she told me about it, and, and she was not included, even though she's on the leadership committee, the board of directors, and, and they, someone didn't include her on it. They included everybody else but her because it involved something she had said on social media to a closed group about someone in the building as if though now that she's in some leadership position she doesn't have the right to talk in a private closed group and I told her I said this is what happens as people start to tell you that you have to be quiet you can't talk to people anymore you can't tweet you can't Facebook you can't have an opinion you can't have an exchange because you're above that now because you're on the board Right. That's the that's the kind of thing that people keep telling her. You're on the board now, the homeowners association. Oh, my God. It's like so much power. How will he handle it all? (laughs) It's ridiculous the way people are at the basic core and tenet of human nature. I told her to hell with what these people are. Say whatever you want to say. You are a resident and an owner in the building. You have friends in the building. You have the right to say whatever the damn hell you want to say. And nobody, nobody has a right to tell you otherwise because you're on the board, you're at a higher standard. Bullshit. Bullshit. So I just take that small, I'm, I, I hate to say it this way, this happens in church too. This happens in deacons and, 
elders of a church. This happens in the homeowners association. It happens in small businesses. It happens at the presidency level. The people who are being challenged, they start finding ways where they have developed power, whether it be by written rule and authority or just some sort of unspoken, you know, earned power by their position and tenure to start to undermine the people who seek the change. That's what this is. So while you have to stay informed on the policy issues that are happening in the country that affect you financially and affect the legacy that we leave for our children and grandchildren, you don't have to care about all this. You don't have to care about Andrew McCabe's pension. You don't have to care if Trump fired him because he wanted to obstruct justice. You don't have to care if Trump fired him because he was obstructing justice or, or criminal. It doesn't affect you that much. What you have to care about is in the end determining if you're being lied to or not. At some point, a report comes out from the inspector general. At some point, charges get filed against Andrew McCabe or not, and you should care about that. If they don't get filed, and the report says he was leaking sensitive and classified data, or the report suggests that he was undermining the president in some sort of illegal fashion and nothing happens, much as it does with Hillary Clinton, then we have signs as the American people that we need more and more bombast, more and more disruption, more and more chaos than perhaps we even have now with Trump. Because it's only this disruption, this chaos, this, this visceral nature, this polarization, it's only this that will expose and break up the swamp or break up the bureaucracy or break up the tight power hold. It's in the chaos. It's in the disruption. I told my wife this in terms of the Homeowners Association. If you want to make change for which is that's why a group of residents in this Homeowners Association rose up, gave you a proxy and allowed you to vote yourself into the board because they wanted a change of direction. It's no different at the level of the United States of America with President Trump. The people of America, like it or not, like Trump or not, wanted a change. They wanted a different direction. They wanted a disruption, and they didn't care what it smelled like, what it looked like, what it felt like. They knew if we didn't change now, we never would, and this republic would be lost. And now we're struggling with Trump fatigue, and we're worried if we have the resolve to put up with this for another three years or maybe seven. At this point, I can't tell you I see Trump doing anything overwhelmingly wrong. Bits and pieces. There's always the armchair quarterback on Monday morning. Monday morning quarterback. But I got to tell you, this is the process of systematically exposing the frauds in our government and letting the process come through for the American people. You don't have to get into the intimate details. You don't have to worry about Trump. You don't have to be affected by the veracity of what he says on Twitter, by the velocity of what he says on Twitter, or even by the, vi by, by the vigor of, of, or not of what he's saying. Just be affected by the fact that we voted for a change because we knew our government was further and further becoming corrupt. And if we don't allow this to happen, we will lose this country as we know it. We fought battles and shed blood, millions of Americans over our approaching 300-year history to fight for our freedoms. And now we're fighting a battle we've never fought before internally 
Not a lot of bloodshed in this battle, if any. But there's going to be a lot of figurative bloodshed. And it's going to be psychologically bloody. And we better learn how to put up with it and allow it to happen because we need this. We need to send a message to Washington that the American people are in charge. And when we elect someone to the presidency, you are not to undermine it. You are to support it and get the hell in line. And if you don't, we'll put you behind bars. That needs to happen. And if it doesn't, we need to double down, not just on Trump, but on people like Trump who will put the spotlight on the McCabe's and the Comey's and the Clinton's and the Obama's and whomever else it is that has weaponized or seeks to participate in the weaponization of our federal agencies to control things politically. All right, let's move along. Are you addicted to being busy? This kind of fits in this because we're so busy, so overwhelmed with information. We're so overwhelmed with work and details and processes and procedures. Are you too addicted to really see that you're overwhelming yourself and running your life? A psychologist has revealed the symptoms to watch out for and the trick to switching off and clearing your calendar. Jamie Block says female. Uh, or spoke to female, which is a part of the Daily Mail organization, uh, that we have an addiction to busyness. You can just become addicted to being busy. I think I suffer from this. If I'm sitting around idle, I feel like I've got to get up and do something. When we complete tasks, she says, we get a burst of the pleasure hormone dopamine. Facebook and Twitter use this with likes and retweets and the number of followers we have. There's a dopamine boost in all of that, and they use it to get us addicted to their social media sites. But, but getting tasks done, checking things off a list becomes uh, addictive because of dopamine. It's a pleasure hormone that's produced in our brain. And as we complete tasks, we need more tasks because we become addicted to feeling the, the pleasure of completion. It's become a new status symbol, busyness, that is, to show that you're productive. If I'm always busy, I must be doing well, right? Here are the signs that you're addicted to being busy. You pack your schedule to the brim, full day of everything. You panic at the thought of an activity-free day. Like There's a slight panic when you realize, I don't have anything scheduled today. Oh, my God, my business must be falling apart. I, I, get, I do that sometimes. When you're out, you can't stop checking your phone or emails. You just check them all the time. You feel the need to constantly be productive. I think it's extremely legitimate to say with smartphones, with the amount of news, how complex everything's become, the number of technical procedures we all have to go through, whether it be checking our bank account or conducting a task anymore, the computers are in control of us. And we find the need to try to constantly try to keep up with all of this. And we've become addicted to being busy. I bring this up in the middle of this podcast because obviously the first story that we, we consumed the first half hour with was, was just overwhelmingly detailed with issues that in some way we should really care about, but in others is so complex it would consume us to fully understand. And when you combine that with multiple stories of its nature at various levels from our political and cultural context and discourse to our business lives and our family lives and our uh, what little is left for leisure, we have to be mindful of staying focused on what's important. 
And it's okay to spend some time with the politics, but I find that it's better to super or uber focus or niche focus on a few topics of the politics and really understand them and to limit the amount of time we're willing to spend online dealing with those things so that we can then balance the amount of time that we are allowing ourselves and willing to spend doing busyness during our day, which is necessity of business, is a necessity of business, and then balance that with our family time. It ought to be a third, a third, a third, a third leisure, reading, hobby, you know, those sort of things, a third business, and a third family. I mean, that's a healthy weekday. The weekends ought to be a little more family and a little less of all of that. I I don't think we're balanced anymore as a country, and I I think that's creating a lot of strife. It's causing us to miss things as people. And as we go through our lives, we're, we're so weighed on the data and details of our lives and our busyness that we feel guilty. We feel pulled. I know I do that I'm not spending enough time with the family. I'm not spending enough time with the kids. I'm not spending enough time um, forging my hobbies and, and things that I love to do because I feel guilty when I do. I should be working. I should be buried in stuff, right? We've got to stop that. It creates, and it, for me, it creates a reaction where sometimes I just want to get away and do nothing and then I become a zombie for three or four days, which is okay, but it's the wrong kind of balance. If you have three or four days of nonstop work followed by three or four days of nonstop nothing, that's better than constant work or constant nothing. But we really ought to be able to blend in and out of it. And it requires a focused effort. Our third topic today on the Make America Great Again podcast from Talk40.com is about this Katy Perry legal battle. You may not care anything about Katy Perry, the singer, But I found this to be interesting. It's business. It's sort of political. It's religion. It's culture. It's politics. It's it's also housing. A nun is fighting the battle against Katy Perry. A couple of nuns are from the convent that she is purchasing from the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. The nun says she left with nothing after this bitter legal fight with Katy Perry. Over a 12, um, is it 12 or 14? I think it's 14 and a half million dollar historic L.A. convent where the sisterhood has lived for four decades. They started the legal battle in 2015. It was their former convent. It's a bright pink mansion in the Los Feliz neighborhood of L.A. 25 bedrooms, 24 bathrooms. The Royal Catholic Arch- Archbishop of L.A. accepted a, t- uh, a $14.5 million bid from Pe- uh, Katy Perry. And the Archbishop uh, Joseph Gomez says the co- convent is under its ownership. The nuns, however, say it's theirs to sell, and they found a buyer, namely property developer Dana Hollister. On Friday, the latest court battles, which keep escalating from one court to the next through appeals, Sister Holzman tragically collapsed and died in the Los Angeles courtroom, literally died Friday. Now Sister Rita Callanan, who is suffering from cancer, says she's been left with nothing in the ongoing legal battle. Now, the only thing I can find in this latest version of the story is from back in March of 2017, The Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Stephanie Bowick wrote in a finding, in a ruling, the court finds that the sisters did not have the authority to sell the property, 
to this developer, Hollister. The Pope did not consent to the sale of the property to Hollister, and there was no written approval from the Holy See or the Archbishop. Therefore, Perry can purchase the property. But that decision was then overturned by an appeals court, meaning that it was stayed for another hearing or series of hearings. So uh, the singer is saying she wants to move into the estate to, quote, live there with her mother and grandmother, sit in the meditation garden, sip green tea, and find herself. (laughs) I mean, this is typical Hollywood liberal elitist singer versus the religious business, right? And you've got the nuns who are basically losing everything they've ever earned in their life or saved, fighting to keep this house, which is their former convent they don't even live in anymore, which apparently some judge has already looked at and says it's owned by the Catholic Church. I looked at the comment thread on on uh, one of the websites on this just to see what people were saying. The, the first few reactions not plucked out of many. There's 1,100 comments here. I just put, picked the first two pages. Let me read a couple. How many times throughout history have Catholics uprooted a population and stole their wealth, religion, and beliefs? I don't buy that. That kind of response is this anti-religion Joey Behar you know, Jim Carrey's the latest bashing Sarah Huckabee Sanders, calling her a so-called Christian, you know, standing up for the wicked Donald Trump. I mean, you get these people that aren't practicing in religion. They don't they don't talk about their faith. They don't they don't project faith, not saying that they are bad people because of that or that they're not Christian. I'm just simply saying they don't ever talk about it, but they're the first to rush to the scene and say somebody's not a Christian or the church is bad or whatever without really qualifying that statement. Listen, some churches are businesses and at that they're bad businesses and they disgust me, but some churches are great. And it's our job as Christians to find those churches or cathedrals or whatever is our faith, whatever goes with our faith. It's our job to find those organizations that ultimately, not that are perfect, there's no perfect, there's no perfection, but that are doing overwhelmingly good work and have good hearts and good intentions that we want to be a part of that aligns with our values and our faith. It's that simple. So for someone to just judge this as a church being a church, no, I think this is what happens inside religious organizations, which sometimes they get distracted from their purpose and it becomes in the end about money. And maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But it's not fair to talk about what the Catholic Church has done in the past because the Catholic Church has done bad. The Catholic Church has done a lot of good, too. And I don't see the Catholic Church running around the world, even in the Pope. We may disagree from time to time with what he says, but they're not running around the world touting violence and disruption and evil behavior, much as does this elite crowd in Hollywood. So I, I, I wouldn't put that on them. Someone said, you're not special because you're a nun or Christian. I'd buy that. Everybody's the same, whether we identify with Christianity or not. One person says, Crystal says, I love Katy Perry, but babe, come on, you have so much money, just buy or build your own home and leave these nuns alone. At some point, you'd wonder, yeah, no, I don't know. I'm thinking about that. If I were, if I had engaged to buy a four hundred fifty thousand or forty five thousand or forty five million, it doesn't matter the price property from the Catholic Church, and they had the right to sell it, and they signed a contract to sell it to me, and I had an attorney advising me that based upon their title search, they have the right to sell it, 
and then some nuns or some other people claiming under the banner of religion that they have the right and they should be able to sell it and you shouldn't do this to religious people, I'd say, what part of the legal binding contract has anything to do with you people? I've had that happen before. Well, they can't close on the property. And as a real estate broker, I've had people do this many times for various reasons. Well, he's a preacher. So what? He signed a contract, closed on the damn property. I'd say to say it just like that. Because, oh, I can't believe you talk that way. That's so unprofessional. Well, it's a lot less unprofessional to say the word damn than it is to sign a contract, commit yourself to something as a preacher, and then decide arbitrarily not to do what you said you're going to do and honor your word and your bond. That's called deception. It's called lying. That's a lot worse than a single word. At least, in, I mean, maybe I shouldn't judge it that way, but that to me. So I've had people, well, I've, someone in their family's come down with cancer. Oh, I'm so sorry. Who did it? Their niece. I'm sorry. Where in this contract does it say that if so-and-so in your extended family comes down with cancer that you get to bail? And how do I even know that's the truth? And why should I be concerned about all of the people on the other side of the transaction when the law says I'm supposed to represent the seller here who has already packed up and moved out and is ready to close tomorrow? And I, I just, you know, this is the way you have to deal with things anymore because people just, because I feel a certain way, I don't think I ought to do it. I feel like we've been here 40 years, the nuns are saying, and I feel like we ought to be able to keep the property, sell it, do whatever we want, keep the money. I don't care how you feel. That's not how the world works. That's not even how religion works. Religion's not about feeling. It's not legalistic either in religion, but it's also about doing the right thing. And if, if in the religion, in my understanding of my Christian faith, it talks about obeying the laws of the land. Maybe not in those exact words, but that's the meaning. We live in a land, we have to obey those laws. And so if the law says this property belongs to the person who's on the deed and that in order to have equitable interest in anything such as real property, you have to record it at the courthouse and it has to be in proper format. That's to keep there from being too much fraud. Plenty of it even with that. Then you don't get to claim that you feel like you own the property or have a right to some part of it if it's not recorded at the courthouse. I'm not sure why this story manifests the way it does. Sarah says she's a nun, these ladies. They're nuns. She sh they shouldn't be looking to involve themselves in things of the world by trying to sell property they don't own or taking people to court. Her situation is one entirely of her own creation. That's tough because you got a nun dropping dead uh, in her 80s, but she's dropping dead in court with the stress of this on Friday. you got another one with cancer, perhaps developed, not just because of this, but under the stress of it, they probably clearly believe that they have some right to these properties, either by something that was said along the way by the Catholic Church or something that's in writing that's not recorded properly. And Katy Perry clearly believes that she has the right to purchase it because of the fact that uh, the Catholic Church owns it legally, as it appears in the court records. Otherwise, the L.A judge would not have ruled such a way the fact that it was appealed and is still ongoing just simply means there might be some argument that the judge says could be legitimate could be doesn't mean it is and that they need to investigate that further in a court of law 
Bottom line for you, th- I think this story is fascinating because it involves greed to some level. First of all, uh, I think if Katy Perry has the money and wants a 25-bedroom house, then she should just knock herself out and buy it. Hell, if she wants a 50-bedroom house, she should be able to buy whatever she wants with her money because she earned it as a singer, and I have no issue with that whatsoever. I would only point out that people like Katy Perry are the first to run to the scene or go onto the stage and bash Trump for all of his bombast, yet they're the most willing to fight the church and the nuns or whomever it is to make sure that what they have had committed to them actually gets done. Now, it's interesting. It's not okay for Trump to do it, but to people like Katy Perry, it's perfectly fine for her to do it. And they're the first to talk about all the goodwill and the work and women's rights and issues and all this politically, you know, uh, socially popular garbage that comes out of Hollywood and the performer elites like singers, a lot of them. But yet they perform in business the exact way that Trump is performing. It's amazing to me. Now, that's my first observation. The second is, is that I don't understand why a bunch of nuns who've been living in a house for 40 years that's owned by the Catholic Church under the Catholic um, Archbishop don't have a pretty clear contract or document that says this is what they own or this is their interest, and it's instantly provable and recorded. I don't understand that. So if you don't have that then that isn't an issue to block a sale that involves the the sale from the Catholic Church to Katy Perry. That's an issue where you sue the church. And that's ultimately, this is a way to sue the church without really suing the church because it looks like on, on paper they're suing Katy Perry. Well, re- really they're suing the Catholic Church. So the nuns are suing the church because ultimately if Katy Perry loses, the church then loses to the nuns. But it's a way to hide behind, nah, I'm not suing the church, I'm suing Katy Perry, or I'm suing to block Katy Perry, but they're really, really suing their own church. But you've been there 40 years, and you're saying this is your convent, but they shut it down, and you ladies retired. I, I just don't get this kind of thing. This is a good example of just how messed up our world has become, where everybody's got their hand out, everybody wants a piece of something. Most people don't protect their interest in things and record it the right way, and then they get upset when they can't get out of something what they have unilaterally set as expectations to get it, and then they're mad at everybody but themselves. It's a world without proper accountability. I don't know what should happen here, but I know I see the utmost of hypocrisy on all sides except maybe the Catholic Church's part here. Maybe the Catholic Church is just selling a piece of property they own and didn't expect the nuns to fight like this. That could be possibly the situation. Keep reading our articles. We put out several a day at talk40.com. We appreciate you listening to the Make America Great Again podcast.